Welcome to the Why We Surf podcast from way out west in wonderful Wyoming. And while the deer and the antelope play, we will ask and hopefully answer the question, why we serve? Ken, Hugh, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing well, Dan. I spent a lot of time this week preparing sustainability binder for um, our incoming Vista Thomas. So it's kind of fun yet sad to reflect on here and write down all my experiences. Uh, giving him some good contacts in the community to kind of spur some project ideas. And I'm, I'm just really excited for him to get started, but also um, reluctant to be leaving the work that we've created here. But uh, all smiles, no no complaints here. How about yourself, guys? Yeah, we're, we're sorry to see you go, Ken. It's been a great week and a great month of, of doing this podcast with you. Speaking of you guys being Vistas and uh, can your services winding to a close in your service with EJW and Habitat respectively, is there, has there been a particular pressing community need that your eyes have been open to, which you weren't previously aware of? This is going to be a kind of broad one, but I think overall isolation, just whether it's um, people living in a precarious housing situation where they're not sure if they're going to have rent for the next month, or it's kind of like dilapidated conditions inside there, like dealing with the stress of that alone, the possibility of domestic violence or threat of sexual assault in the household, that type of isolation. Or if you look at um, the aging population in Cheyenne, greater Laramie County, and what they've had to endure this past year and a half, that's not something that just cuts off as soon as the pandemic ends. Like there are going to be lingering problems from that. So my mind is really on isolation, how we can go out and meet people in the community, make sure that their needs are addressed uh, moving forward as we all heal from this. Hugh, what about you? Well, yeah, I just, uh, that, that is a really great point, Ken. And Dan and I just came from a really interesting and, and fruitful call with our friend and fellow VISTA, Daniel Barbakov, and the folks over at the Aging Division at the Department of Health, as well as their, their new VISTA, Kristen. And I have to admit, before I joined Habitat, I, I really didn't consider what it meant to age in place. And perhaps that's because I'm young, and, and young people think they're always going to be young. But aging in place is, is incredibly important for older adults I've learned and, you know, that maintaining their independence, keeping people out of nursing homes that don't necessarily have to be there. And that has been super important during the pandemic because of the spread of the virus within nursing facilities has really wrecked havoc. So learning about aging in place through Habitat's home repairs program has been incredibly eye-opening for me and and so I really hope we're able to expand our, our program moving forward and build a strong partnership with the aging division. But Dan, how about, how about you with your time at Habitat and just your experience in, in life in general? Yeah, I, I, I would echo Ken's sentiments about the isolation, especially in the last year, and, and knowing the fact that it's kind of opened I don't know what right way to say it, new ways for those problems to exist, I guess you could say it. You know, if if you're stuck in the house all the time and, and you can't get away from something, that just makes it that much harder of a situation to deal with. So that that I think that's been an eye opener for uh, those people facing 
especially mental health issues and, and just not being able to get out and, and get some help and deal with that. So that's my answer, uh, short and sweet. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting year to say the least. And a lot of things, interesting enough, have over the last year have been born out of dire necessity of people struggling through the pandemic. And so that ties into our guest today, who is executive director of the Comia House and Resource Center in Cheyenne. Comia, founded in 1965, stands for the Cooperative Ministry for Emergency Assistance. It is the mission of Comia to provide a safe, secure, and temporary shelter to all persons of all ages who are homeless and whenever possible to collaborate with community programs and resources to create opportunities for independent living. Offering compassionate care is at Comia's core, and at the center of their operations is Robin Bocanegra. Robin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Robin, I mentioned the year that Comia was founded. I would be curious to hear more about the history of the nonprofit when the first physical shelter came to be and your increase in services over time. Sure. You know, the, the date in, in the early or mid-60s was really just identifying, like you said, Comia as an organization. And they originally started because the churches in the downtown core area were seeing a number of the same individuals just roaming from church to church asking for assistance. And they felt there needed to be some better way to keep track of who they were assisting, how they were assisting, what was being offered, and, and if it was doing any good. And so by 1982, they came to the conclusion that a shelter was needed. And so on December 3rd of 82, Camilla opened its doors as a shelter. So coming up on... 40 years. 40 years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, next year. And so, um, you know, a lot of changes in those 40 years. It's interesting when I look back, because obviously I wasn't here those 40 years. But when the shelter first started, it was one night, every person got one night. Well, we know now dealing with people who are experiencing homelessness that it doesn't go away in one night. You know, you had to have your own blanket, you had if you wanted to take a shower, you had to be carrying a towel with you. None of those things were provided. It was just a space. There was no food provided. Uh, volunteers had coffee pots and bowls of snacks. They later realized people needed something more substantial. So crock pots were brought in and people were served a cup of stew. Now we have a full commercial kitchen. We have 120 beds. We have a staff of over 22 people. You know, it's just in those 40 years, so much has changed. Yeah, it'd be hard to imagine trying to do what you guys do still with that original model of just one night. I mean, yeah. it's unthinkable. <laughs> right, right. Anything longer. They did, I believe the history says if, if someone needed more than one night, it had to come through a referral from a partnering agency. So Salvation Army could call us up and say, can you give Pete here, you know, an extra night? But even then, we have residents that are here for months to years. And do you all set, you say for months to years, so it sounds like there isn't a set time that someone where you say, okay, now there is. Yeah, there is, you know, our programs have have guidelines and have expectations. What happens though is life doesn't live by our expectations right. and by our time frames. So we try and set a reasonable, you know, amount of time. Our journey program for instance is really the the initial program where you come in and say I don't want to be homeless anymore, I'm willing to look for work. So they join the journey program, we give them 30 days to go out and find a job. Once they find that job and secure that job, we move them into journey two, okay? Then that has some additional expectations. They have to put together a budget and start, you know, paying back some debt or figuring out how they're going to start saving and preparing for independence. 
we give them another 30 days to do that. Then we move them into pay to stay, which is six months. Pay to stay says you pay a very minimal rent, but you're, you are allowed then to be here and have your bed for up to six months. You pay $150 a month in rent and the rest of your money then goes to savings or paying off debt because we're providing your food, we're providing laundry vouchers, we're providing you know pretty much everything they need to function. So the money they're making aside from that small rent then can go towards their, you know, their self-sufficiency savings. For those that need you know, extenuating help, then we have our two-year transitional program where they get a studio apartment. Of course, then the rent becomes a little more realistic at $400 a month, but they have a private space with their own bathroom, kitchen, living space. That program is up to two years. But again, if someone is in that program and we're seeing that they're struggling or they're doing well, but they aren't ready to be done just because their six months are up or their two years are up, and we don't want to jeopardize you know, the success they've achieved, we'll extend them. You know, we'll say, hey, you need a little bit longer. Yep, absolutely, you're doing great. But on the other hand, we can have somebody join the journey program and after two weeks, haven't even filled out a job application. We might say to them, you know, you're not taking this program seriously. So we're gonna bump you out of the program and make room for somebody who is really serious about it. So those dates, those time limits are guidelines, but we try and look at each individual according to what they're able to accomplish. And, you know, two people can go out and be looking for a job. One guy can find a job the first day. Another guy just doesn't have luck. It's not that he's not trying. Life just isn't working out, you know, quite the way our time frame says it should. So we try and be empathetic to that, that people are different, their circumstances are different. But again, that's up to the caseworkers to really be working with them and determine if they're working hard and making an effort and need more time, or if they're screwing off and, you know, maybe need a little kick in the pants to say, hey, this, you know, this doesn't come free. At some point, you have to start being productive. You know, when I say that we have a, an individual here, uh, you know, you were talking about the isolation of, of older folks during the pandemic. And we found the opposite problem because when everyone was told to shelter at home, we're dealing with people whose home is a shelter. And so they're being told to confine themselves with a group of strangers or you know non-family members who they may not get along with or don't particularly enjoy and now they have to be with these people 24 hours a day confined into this small shelter and no place to get away by yourself so you've got your you know 25 bunk mates constantly right there we found people were actually couldn't wait to get out of here people were leaving with nowhere to go because they just felt so trapped with this house full of people and so we had a hard time getting folks to stay and to quarantine the way it was recommended. So we kind of saw the opposite effect of what you see with folks who are living in their own homes. You raised some solid points there, Robin. Um, we are emerging on the other side of, now stop me if you all have heard this before, um, unprecedented times. And there's a great write-up I saw in the Cheyenne Post pretty recently about how Comia rose to the occasion throughout the pandemic, you know, helping dozens of struggling families avoid eviction. But the article also got into the difficulties that y'all encountered um, with keeping your employees and residents healthy. So I'm curious if you could talk about your experiences and observations and leading Comia throughout the COVID-19 era. Sure. You know, we tried very carefully or very hard to, to follow the CDC recommendations. We're not doctors, we're not scientists. So we took our lead from the Wyoming Health Department, you know, and, and really took those, those updates seriously. So 
we immediately tried to space people out. So we, it kind of happened naturally because some people were moving on and saying, I don't want to be here. If you're going to go on lockdown, forget it. But those who decided to stay, we spaced out the beds. We had people sleeping head to toe rather than all sleeping the same way. So their faces weren't, you know, they're not breathing on one another. We tried putting them in every other bunk. So having less capacity or less people here did work to our advantage. So we could space people out a little bit better. We did do away with some of our long-term programs because we needed those extra rooms. You know, we divide these programs up by area. So one dorm is for one program, another dorm is for another program. We did away with that so that we could just get people spread out and farther apart from one another and give them space. We, you know, went immediately to the masks, the hand washing, the temperature taking. Um, staff had plexiglass in front of their desk. So if they met with a client, there was that barrier. Uh, really tried to keep as much separation so people weren't breathing on each other, touching one another, you know, as much as we possibly could. We did real well until November, about well, October of uh, 20, when we had this reality show come in and, and remodel our family shelter. And between the cast and crew of the show, all the volunteers that came, and our own staff and residents, we did a testing and ended up with 11 positives all at once. And it was pretty scary. So we shut down the shelter, moved everyone into motels, which meant we had to deliver food three times a day, paying for individual motel rooms for you know 40 plus people. And then staff, I was one of the first staff to test positive. So I'm at home in bed, and we're gifted money to put people in hotels who are trying to recover from COVID. And I'm trying to make hotel reservations and get paperwork filled out, intakes completed, while I'm home feeling really crappy. So it was not an easy time. But once we got through that two weeks of you know, getting hit pretty hard, we learned quickly that we were, as much as we thought we were doing the right things, we were still being far too lax. So we buckled down while we were closed for two weeks. We had somebody come in and deep clean the entire shelter and staff came back with the attitude that we're going to be extremely diligent. We're all going to wear our masks at all times and really be on the residents to do the same thing. And we didn't have another positive test. I believe we had some random positives. And then from December 23rd until sometime in March or April, we went without any positive COVID tests. And, and we test every week. And so we figured we thought, hey, we've got this figured out now. We've kind of learned what needs to be done. And so what we did find is the folks who were testing positive here and there were people who were new, had not been in the shelter, had not been practicing our same practices or had shown up new. But we did have isolation places. So if someone showed up and was brand new to the shelter, they had to stay in this isolation room until they were able to be tested so that we weren't co-mingling, you know, tested people with untested, that kind of thing. We even had space for folks who tested positive, so we no longer had to put them in motels. We could keep them in an area here in the building, which is so much easier because trying to find the staff to deliver three meals to people scattered all over town takes up so much time. So, you know, we, we did step up and we did take care of a lot of folks. We received some of the homeless prevention money that came out mid 2020 and spent hours and hours of vetting people that were applying for rental assistance because they were about to be evicted. And the problem at that time is there was still 
the eviction moratorium. It was supposed to be against the law to evict someone, but in Wyoming, landlords were finding ways to evict anyway. And so we were caught between HUD telling us, don't be spending that money. You know, these people can't be evicted. But then we had people coming to us and saying, I promise you, here's my eviction notice. It's, you know, stamped by a judge. I'm being evicted. And so we're trying to do what the money was intended for, which is to keep people in their homes. But these HUD grants are set up so that you spend the money first, and then you ask HUD to pay you back, which can put you in a pretty precarious situation. If they're not happy with the way you're spending it, then you're risking putting out all this money and not getting it back. Fortunately, we were able to get reimbursed for the monies that we spent and it all worked out. But, you know, that's a lot of stress on a, a charity to be putting out thousands and thousands of dollars and not being 100% sure that it's going to come back. Robin, I, I've got a quick question for you. You know, usually, or at least from my understanding, that the winters are really hard on you guys because, you know, with the, the colder temperature means more people seeking shelter. Was this winter during the pandemic any worse than a regular winter? No, it was actually much, much less. So in January of 2019, right before we learned of the pandemic, we were averaging 125 people. And we don't have 125 beds. We have, I believe, about 115 beds, and we have a dozen mattresses to lay on the floor. But we were at max. I mean, we had easily a dozen people on the floor in the living room every night. So 120 some people in, in January to early February of 2019. This last December of 2020, we were lucky if we had 50 people in the building. And a lot of that was people had said, if you're gonna lock us down and tell us that we have to wear masks and wash our hands and can't go anywhere, we're not staying. Not now, the ironic part of this is under normal circumstances, every day our clients would say, hey, is it a stay-in day today? Because we don't want to go out. So it's it's kind of that, that mental thing where if you tell somebody they can't go somewhere, they absolutely have to go. But if you tell them they must go, then they don't want to. So it was like a no-win, no matter what we were trying to do, the opposite, you know, because just think of it psychologically. If someone tells you you can't do something, that tends to be what you focus on. And that's what we found to be the case with our population is when we started telling them, hey, you don't have to go anywhere. You can stay in every day. Even if they only wanted to leave for half an hour, they had to run down to the Exxon station and buy a soda or buy cigarettes. We started even collecting their money and sending one person to go buy everyone's cigarettes. And we kept candy and soda here and opened our own little commissary and it still didn't work. They just had to leave the building. And of course, I'm telling them, even if you just go to the store, you touch a doorknob that a COVID positive person touched and you pick that up, we can't be sure that you're not going to bring something back. And they just didn't understand the seriousness. I'm only going to be gone a short time. Well, it's not about how long you're gone. It's where you go and who you come in contact with. So it was very, very different. And we still are not back up to capacity. And a lot of that is, and I hate to say this because you know, charities, we rely on generosity and money, but so much of the stimulus monies that were being put out there, unemployment benefits, you know, people getting stimulus checks, our population does not look at that stimulus check as, hey, this is going to pay two months rent, or if I save this, I'm that much closer to a deposit on an apartment. Instead, it was like, hey, I got a couple weeks in a motel, I can get out of this stinking shelter and do my own thing. 
And so people were burning through their stimulus checks. They'd be gone for two weeks and then they'd turn around and want to come back in. And we'd have to go through the whole quarantine testing every time they'd leave and come back. And so every time a stimulus check came out, the place would get empty. And then a couple weeks later, the same group of people would come back and want in and not realizing, you know, what a burden that is for us, for Crossroads Clinic, for everybody involved to make sure that, you know, the shelter is safe. And then when you mentioned my staff, they're going home to their families at night and they're around folks that really aren't taking it seriously. And if you think about it, you know, folks who are living in homelessness sometimes feel like their life is at risk every day. So a pandemic meant nothing to them. You know, this is nothing new. My life, I don't know from one day to the next if I'm going to have a place to sleep, if I'm going to, somebody's going to stab me in the park, if I'm going to have food. You know, they're just so used to living with uncertainty that I don't think the pandemic really did much to get their attention. It was just one more thing. It's just terrible to hear that their situation could be so bad that the pandemic wouldn't even make a difference. Right. But I I do really commend your response to the pandemic and putting in place the safety protocols and then revamping the safety protocols. And as someone who unfortunately caught COVID myself, I, I really have to commend you being able to work while you were sick with, with COVID because I, I was down for the count. Well, there was a few days when I shut the phone off and said, I just can't answer the phone. I can't I can't do it. I'm sick. I need some time. And I kind of caught some static for it. You know, I'd get these nasty voicemails. How am I supposed to get help if nobody answers the phone? And so there were a few days when, you know, and there just really wasn't anybody else to hand it to because there's so many details involved in these grant funded services that it would just take too much to try and train somebody. So you're almost better off just pausing for two days, hoping. And I was fortunate. I did not get as sick as so many people did. I mean, I certainly felt like I had something, but, you know, I wasn't near the hospitalization or any of that kind of stuff. I feel very, very fortunate. On our episode earlier this year with Rachel Martinez from Family Promise, we touched on the Marbit report on homelessness in Wyoming. And one part of the report that I found particularly striking was that in Cheyenne, an individual experiencing homelessness generally travels around five to seven miles per day to access all the services they need in a normal year without the pandemic. And we all know Cheyenne can be a difficult city to navigate without a car as there's limited public transportation options. Could you perhaps walk us through some of the additional challenges that go along with homelessness that the average person might not be aware of or might not consider? I've been doing this for 20 years and um, and not just in Cheyenne, but it, it is the, the landscape of homelessness is changing so much. When I first started in 2020, working with the homeless, your typical homeless person was a man in his 50s who was a Vietnam veteran, you know, maybe had PTSD, some substance abuse issues. And that was really your, your primary, I guess, sample of, of homelessness. You didn't see as many families. You didn't see as many young people or old people. You come to the shelter right now today, and you're going to see at least four people that are using walkers, a couple people on oxygen. There are days when we look like a nursing home. And so there are not, there are not enough places for 
elderly to go if they aren't receiving you know insurance benefits medicaid medicare if you're not old enough for that and you don't have disability benefits there's nothing out there for you and so we often i think people take it for granted that when you're sick you go to the doctor well if you don't have insurance you can't go well get a job and pay for it well i don't know too many doctors that will let you make payments to come in and have an office visit and at 250 dollars a crack it's not going to happen. You know, they can't put them, they, you don't know you're going to get sick and have time to save up $250 to go. These are such obvious barriers to you and I, but to the average person, they don't stop, you know, to think about that. Or, you know, the fact that mental illness is so much more prevalent than what folks realize. And we're not talking full-blown schizophrenia or some type of mental illness that is so obvious that the person can't function. We're talking, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, things that a certain a person might be able to, you know, certainly function and, and live with, but yet it's just problematic enough that they get a job, can't figure out why they can't keep it. They get an apartment, can't figure out why they can't keep it. You know, there's these underlying things that just aren't as obvious as we think they should be, but they're so debilitating and are so serious. You know, when Dr. Marbot was here, he, that I guess was when the welcome mat was really the primary day spot. And of course, we're talking a good three mile hike from Kamiya to the welcome mat. And then they swing by Salvation Army and then back up here and the offices for, for childcare and for, you know, the human services is way out. I mean, everything's so scattered. So yeah, it was, it was tough even before you know, a pandemic. And then you add the buses have now shut down and it's winter and, you know, yeah, people can maybe walk in the summertime, but offices aren't open. They want you to call in on Zoom. Well, not everybody has a computer if you're homeless. And, you know, it, it just made things really challenging. We tried to bring as many services into the building that we could. You know, we worked with Peak Wellness to do telemed. We had Recover Wyoming doing telemeetings for recovery, providing phone numbers for people to call if they were struggling. You know, we feel as though our partners really stepped up and tried to make themselves available to us, but there's only so much you can do. And, you know, folks in, in the situation of homelessness too struggle with follow through. You know, they'll, they'll make it to an initial meeting, but what's the likelihood that they're going to come back and make that second appointment or, you know, you got to pay for the second appointment. Even if we have money to pay for it, are they going to remember? Or, you know, will you even find them when a week rolls around? If they're truly transient, they're not even living here anymore. Keeping track of folks that way is, is just that extra layer of challenge. You know, so like I said, our partners were amazing to work with. There wasn't anybody that that said to us, sorry, I can't help you, or sorry, I can't work with you. I mean, people really did, everyone tried to be creative and find ways. So for that, we're really grateful, but we still missed the boat. You know, people fell through the cracks. Things didn't always go the way we wanted to. So, you know, when it comes to families, I think too, we don't realize that when a family is in crisis, parents immediately you know, they just want their kids to be safe. They just want to do what's best. And we saw so many families from out of state flock to Wyoming 
early on when the reports were low numbers in Wyoming, you know, not a lot of COVID cases. We saw so many families from out of state coming here and there were more than what we could serve. Between us and Family Promise, we were all at max capacity. We couldn't even find hotel rooms to put them in. And, you know, we're still seeing that. What's happening now, though, is we see families whose homelessness or threat of homelessness isn't directly related to COVID, so they don't qualify for the COVID programs that are rental assistance and, and things like that. So there's there's been so much focus on COVID that now there's a population of people that can't get assistance because it's all COVID related. And we're seeing a lot of families calling us saying they're being evicted, they don't have rent money, losing their jobs, but it's it's too late to equate it to the pandemic. So there's no service for them. Yeah, that is that is terrible to hear that the resources and the money could be out there, but just not made available through red tape or, or other forms of bureaucracy that is really heartbreaking. Robin, do you see any path forward on a larger scale in Wyoming or Cheyenne looking at a systemic push to to combat homelessness? I'm quite pleased with the state of Wyoming. I, I believe that we work well together. I get calls from providers in Casper and Gillette. And, you know, as, as a, a large geographic state, we are almost like a small family. I mean, I don't know if it's true in other businesses, but in, in nonprofit and in homelessness, most of us know each other. We know the directors of other organizations in other parts of the state. And so we do try very hard to share information, you know, work well. The Casper Shelter and the Camilla Shelter, you know, I know their director quite well. Caseworkers are getting to know each other. We can make calls. And if someone's not working out here, we can, you know, try and sometimes this just isn't the best place. You know, for whatever reason, they're not getting what they need. We can send them up to Casper and they're more successful and vice versa. You know, things just sometimes people need a change of scenery. So as a whole, I, I really believe that we're heading in the right direction. Where I see problems, and I don't know if this is the same statewide, but here in Cheyenne, the, how do I politely say this? Some of the city policies and, and procedures are not set up for emergency situations. So Family Promise has been struggling to find a building for so long. They have the resources to pay for it. They've proven the need, but they can't find a location in an area that the city will approve for zoning purposes. We were granted a half a million dollars. We can't find a location that the city will approve the purpose we want to use it for. My argument is, is there not some process where in, in an emergency situation, if it was just any old year and we were planning, hey, I think we'd like to have a building. Okay, that should have a process and you go through it. But when we're talking, you know, a global pandemic where people's lives are definitely in danger and we need to respond, that they still have to look at you and say, nope, you can't help those people because it's not located in a, in a place we'd like to see it. You know, some of that stuff gets really hard to stomach after a while. And we can politely ask our leaders to make change, but nothing happens overnight. And so 
grants expire, money has to be passed up on, you know, families are told they can't be helped, even though Family Promise has everything in place that they need to, they're not given the go-ahead, you know, to do something so important. And, you know, I see their struggle because we've been there and we're going through it in, in, in other ways. And in, in those situations, we are failing to serve people. I'm so happy, and I never thought I'd say this, because working with homelessness, working in human services, we're all about helping. But I was really pleased when our governor decided to stop the unemployment benefits. We have got a shelter with people in it that I don't need to go to work. I got unemployment. I don't need to go do this. I mean, we're, it's, we're finding it very difficult to motivate people. We've created an environment where if people stop and drag their feet and try not to be productive, they're rewarded. Where five years ago, someone could walk into the shelter and say, hey, I'm looking for two guys to work for cash. I'm paying 10 bucks an hour. I need four hours to move furniture. They would be tripping over each other to, to get to that man to accept the job. Today, we have to walk through the building and the residents will look the other way and you'll actually get in their face and say, hey, this guy wants you to go to work. You want to work? Ah, uh, nah, not today. I don't feel like it. It's, it's very concerning that, you know, and we're expected to set consequences for these folks to motivate them. Well, the consequence is to take away their shelter. What good is that? But on the other hand, if we just allow the bad behavior, nothing changes. So we're in a real quandary right now as to what's the right answer. How do we respond to this? And so back to your original question, I don't know. I am... And really struggling, and so is my staff, to, you know, we used to feel like our programs were working. People came here. They went through the programs. They became self-sufficient. They went out. We have a long, long list of successful people who have gone back into the world and are doing wonderful things. It's not happening as much anymore. Is it, are we failing? Have people changed? You know, we are really struggling to figure out how to continue to do what people need us to do creating incentives, like you said, to have people aspire to get back on their feet and achieve, you know, self-sufficiency and independence. The system is failing in that way. We're not really finding mm -hmm. that formula. And that's something that we're going to need to focus on moving forward. To, to interject about, about the unemployment benefits, it's weird that they, they didn't cap it at a lower amount so this problem wouldn't happen. You know, in my previous career at Thrivent, in dealing with disability income insurance, right. on a federal level, you can only pay a disability claim 65 to 70% of someone's income for that reason. So they don't become disincentivized to go back to work or get better, you know? And it's, it's kind of interesting on why that approach wasn't right. taken. And maybe it was just because of the situation it was just panic maybe i don't know but it's definitely created a secondary problem that you're seeing not just here in wyoming but nationwide my brother just visited ohio south carolina north carolina to see family on the east coast and he said just everywhere they went help wanted signs were in every single window of all these all these businesses and you see that here too our system is so broken and it, it's just a terrible, terrible cycle. And like I said, we are, we are really at a loss for what our role is. 
we've pretty much decided that we're going to kind of stay the course. We're going to continue to have our same expectations. We're going to continue to, you know, talk to the folks that are capable of working and have that expectation, or they might have to go live somewhere else. You know, if that doesn't get their attention um, at some point, we might go through a period where we don't see a lot of people in the shelter because they don't want to be accountable. They don't want to go to work. They don't want to pay bills, but we believe that it'll come back at some point. You know, everything seems to be cyclical. We just have to ride this out and be there for the people who are ready and come to us and say, Hey, I'm done being homeless. I really need your help. Do you feel another piece of that? The, the incentive is that, I mean, minimum wage hasn't gone up in what 15 plus years you know, a living wage isn't what it used to be. And that changes a long time. And so when people say, well, I, you know, if wages right. were higher, if we could afford to pay more, you know, that might change things too. You know, one of the things that we did take advantage of, and it wasn't because our employees threatened to quit. It was just because it was available to us, but we used what, and we're using right now, what is being called hazard pay. And so not every employee gets it, but the employees who are sitting at the front desk, who are in the most vulnerable positions as far as contact with new residents, you know, the risk that someone has been exposed or isn't vaccinated, those folks get an additional $3 an hour, but it's being paid by HUD. So instead of, you know, just randomly throwing unemployment money at people, giving folks like us resources to pay more to keep people at work and keep them engaged. So now my folks, because, you know, nonprofit, no, we're not the highest paying place in town. You know, people aren't going to get rich working for me, but the folks that are typically the lowest paid are now getting that extra boost from me rather than from unemployment. And, you know, if that could have been done across the board for employers to say, well, instead of, you know, laying all these people off or instead of closing down or I don't know, whatever, but now that things are opening up, taking that unemployment money, and helping business owners pay a better wage. Of course, this is going to run out. And I've had to warn my employees and say, you know, you're not going to get paid this forever. At some point, we're going to have to go back to what Camilla can afford. But it's allowed me to stay open. And it's allowed me to keep my staff employed. And, and you know, the way my staff look at it, they're like, hey, for the next six months, if I get an extra three bucks an hour, I'm putting that away, you know, which is the smart thing to do. Instead of blowing it on frivolous things, they're preparing for when they know they won't be making that much money. But that was a huge, huge benefit to us is to be able to offer that hazard pay. Well, Robin, to wrap up, we typically like to do a more lighthearted question, if you will. And although it encountered a lot of difficulty in bringing in fixers, the reality TV show to create the Journey Center, I, I would love to learn about um, the expanded capacity that the Journey Center affords and the opportunities available in the future with that. You know, the Journey Center... I believe was, and I, you know, it depends on who you are, but I tell people that it had God's handprint written all over it. The way it came into being, we'd been struggling to buy that building for years. And all of a sudden it just happened. A donor stepped up, offered a large sum of money. My board got together and said, listen, we need to do this. It's needed in the community. The pandemic hit, which might've caused terrible problems, but in our case, it made people more generous. Those who were actually doing well during the pandemic sent more money. We were able to, like I said, we got recognized and adopted by this TV show. 
things fell into place and all of a sudden we were able to help four families separate from the single shelter, which we always knew was a bad idea. It was one of those things that, well, we can put them in the shelter with the singles or they can be on the street or in their cars. So we were operating under the lesser of two evils where now we have families in a separate, safe, beautiful environment. And just to tell you a brief story about what the Journey Center does for families, and I told this at our recent fundraiser, but it was it's when it really hit me how important it was. We had a, a mother and her two young daughters and the mom's boyfriend move in. And we, you know, we try not to judge. So we don't say, well, if you're not married and if you can't produce a, a marriage license, we won't let you stay. I mean, it, they had been together. The kids called him stepdad or whatever. So we felt it was a family unit. So they all moved in, but there were some issues with the parents. And when we spoke to the parents about the issues, they got mad and moved out and moved into a motel. Well, it was a motel just down the street from us. And my staff person came to me and she said, I'm so worried about these two girls. You know, they really rely on us for so many things. And I'm just concerned for their well-being. They're living in this motel where there's a lot of drugs and other adults. And it's, I'm, I'm so scared for them. And so I told her, I said, all you can do is make sure that those kids have the number to the journey center, make sure they know that if they ever don't feel safe or if they need anything that they can call this number and we will be there to support them. Well, a couple weeks went by and the staff person came to work one morning and the mom and the kids were sleeping in their car in our parking lot. The boyfriend had attacked the mom in the night and so she and the kids fled. It was only you know, a half a block, but they pulled into our parking lot in the car because they felt safe there and waited for the manager to show up. So she invited him in and you know they hadn't slept, hadn't eaten. So she made a bed. We didn't have room, we were full, but she made a bed for the mom in a case manager's office. So mom laid down to sleep and she sat with one of the girls because the young girl said, I, I can't sleep. I don't feel like it. And she sat down and was talking to her and, and doing crafts. And she invited me over so I came over and I was asking the, the little girl, she was, I think, eight. And I said, well, you know, we're full here and we don't want you sleeping on the floor, you know, in an office, but I can put your family in a, a different motel where your mom's boyfriend won't be. And she said, no, he knows our car. So wherever we go. And I said, well, what do you suggest? And she said, I would rather sleep on the floor here because I feel safe here. And just hearing an eight-year-old say, I feel safe here even though she had to spend the night in the parking lot, she knew that we would be there in the morning, we would let her in and that we would take care of her and make sure that her family was safe. At that very moment is when it really hit me. They don't even have to be living with us, knowing we're there, knowing that we're a place that they can come to and ask for help. Just, it, it just really, that was the moment when I said, yep, that's why we're here. That was quite profound. I, I don't have much to say after that, but just for an eight-year-old to communicate that level of gratitude and understanding of her situation, that, that speaks volumes to the work right. that uh, you and your staff are doing. So thank you. And you know, because of this experience, I can just only encourage our community to help Family Promise get a facility because going from helping families in motels to now seeing what a physical building can do, you know, sometimes people will say, well, 
then you'll be competing against one another. And I just laugh, and I know Rachel does too, and we say, listen, there are more than enough families to go around. And if we put each other out of business, wouldn't that be great? You know, if we were able to solve the family homelessness problem in Cheyenne, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Robin, we can't thank you enough for joining us today for this discussion. And thank you so much for all the work you do in the community. We really appreciate it. And But you know, when, when you have an awesome staff like I do, it makes it easy. I got some pretty awesome people working for me. That is excellent to hear. And to our audience out there, keep making the magic happen. Be sure to reach out to your local organizations, see what they need, and if you can swing it, volunteer or donate to them. And yeah, thank you so much.